Theodore Roosevelt's preeminent biographer, Edmund Morris, observed that Roosevelt was, quote, almost infallibly truthful. He was, of course, capable of humorous exaggeration and poetic license, but so was every good storyteller, end quote. But because T.R. was at times a creative storyteller, as regards his experiences in the Badlands, his later biographers have had some difficulty in corroborating some of the dates and places for many of the experiences that he writes about in the decades following his time in the West. Roosevelt's version of many of these episodes seemed to evolve over time. From the 1880s letters that he writes to friends and family while in the Badlands, to his later recollections in books and articles, letters and speeches, the names and places and dates seem to blur, with T.R. at times seemingly even remembering himself as a character in experiences in which he was perhaps not present. Today's guest, author Doug Ellison, has spent a lot of time looking at the known historical record of T.R.'s experiences in the Badlands and documented some of those findings in his 2017 book, Theodore Roosevelt and Tales Told as Truth of His Time in the West. Hello and welcome to the Talk About Teddy podcast, weekly conversations exploring the world of Theodore Roosevelt. I'm your host, Kurt Skinner, and I'm joined as ever by my good pal and co-host, Larry Marple. Hey, Larry, how are you today? Hello, Kurt. I'm feeling bully, and I'm really looking forward to today's (laughs) show. Before I introduce our guest, though, let's give our listeners a little preview of some of the upcoming episodes. Is that okay? Yeah, good idea, Larry. In the month of March... We'll be talking with authors Thomas Bailey and Catherine Joslin about the literary life of Theodore Roosevelt. We've also planned a great conversation with the nation's foremost collector of Theodore Roosevelt political memorabilia, Tom Peeling. Later in the month, we'll be taking an insider's look at Theodore Roosevelt National Park with retired park superintendent Valerie Naylor before heading across the country to speak with the executive director of the Theodore Roosevelt inaugural site in Buffalo, New York. Wow, that's a full travel schedule. We better better get busy with today's show, huh? Larry, what should our listeners know about today's guest? Well, today's guest is Doug Ellison. He was the site supervisor at the Chateau de Mora's State Historic Site in Medora from 1989 to 1996. He's also the former mayor of the town of Medora. It's the town that was closest to TR's two cattle ranches in the Dakotas. Doug and his wife, Mary, own and operate the Western Edge Bookstore and the Amble Inn in Medora. Doug has frequently contributed to various Old West journals and has appeared on the History Channel, and he's authored and published 10 books on the Old West. The book we're focusing on today is Theodore Roosevelt and Tales Told His Truth of His Time in the West. It was published in 2017. Welcome, Doug, to the Talk About Teddy podcast. Well, thank you, Larry. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful to see you. Uh, Doug, you, you quote Herman Hagedorn in the epigraph to your book where he says, I cannot hear the word Dakota without feeling a stirring in my blood. Uh, and I suspect that probably describes your feelings as well. Uh, Over the past four decades, you've written or edited nine books about outlaws and lawmen from Western frontier history. And we're just curious, how did this interest develop for you? Yeah, when I I, uh, saw that quote by Hagedorn, that that, uh, hit close to home because I I grew up on a farm and ranch in, in North Dakota with a South Dakota address right near the border. 
And that quote was very poignant to me. I can't remember a time when I was not interested in Western history in general and regional history in particular. And I guess seeing the tourism advertisements for North Dakota, we uh, make a lot of Sitting Bull and General Custer and Theodore Roosevelt. And so when I was a youngster, uh, I developed an interest in all those historic characters. So with your love of Western frontier history, and you said Sitting Bull and Custer and Theodore Roosevelt, what led you to write this book in particular? This book in particular kind of grew over time. As I read uh, stories about Theodore Roosevelt and area history, it gradually dawned on me that these stories didn't always match up. I read uh, Theodore Roosevelt's versions of uh, his life out here. And then as I dug a little deeper and got into the other documentation, old newspapers, old court records, other reminiscences, it became plain to me that uh, they didn't always mesh. So I I began (laughs) to look at the stories with more of a critical eye and started talking a a bit about some of those contradictions to people. And in 2015, Clay Jenkinson, who hosts the uh, annual Theodore Roosevelt Symposium at Dickinson State University, had asked me to speak the topic that year was Theodore Roosevelt and Frontier Justice. So I began putting that talk together and I included some of these contradictory stories that I had <laughs> discovered. And uh, the talk seemed to go over quite well and and Clay and some others uh, urged me to publish what I had found. So I, I started doing a little more research and eventually uh, found enough where I thought it might might make an interesting uh, study. So each each chapter in the book is basically a different essay on some episodes that TR talked about and wrote about, and mm-hmm. I contrast those with other sources and point out how they do not always match up. Yeah, so these uh, discrepancies, shall we say, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the record. Why do you think TR remembered things differently than you might have discovered in your research? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. You know, it was that Mark Twain era when uh, writers such as Twain and and T.R., who was, of course, a very prolific writer, when they were selling stories and to tell a good story, you, you told a good story, you know, and they weren't necessarily writing academic history. So uh, I, I think they, uh, T.R. in particular, I, I think he just wanted to tell a good story and make it dramatic and exciting. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But to me, the danger there was that so many historians and especially biographers of T.R. would just repeat his stories uncritically and perhaps obviously not realizing that he was uh, exaggerating. <laughs> so I, I just uh, I just felt that uh, uh, an essay or essays plural should be done yeah. on some of these stories and and point out the fact that TR is telling a good story, but it didn't really happen that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know you mentioned in your book that 
you're not the only person to discover the TR and a lot of other prominent figures in the West, that they use the West as that magic mirror to reshape their private and public images. Who else figured out this about Theodore Roosevelt? Yeah, I know Edmund Morris, who is recognized as maybe the premier TR biographer. Edmund Morris pointed that out in his trilogy that uh, that you needed to look at TR with a, a critical eye. Morris, to me, as I read his uh, biography, he's he's a little more dismissive of, of TR's exaggerations. You know, he just kind of uh, gave a little smile figuratively and and said, well. You know, we we give TR the benefit of the doubt, and uh, but he he did recognize that some of TR's stories uh, weren't all entirely accurate, and and others have recognized that too. Rolf Sletten, who I believe has been a guest on your show, uh, pointed yeah. that out in his in his books, and uh, I'm sure others have uh, noticed that as well. Well, in your book, uh, you have a chapter called Friend or Foe. Uh, Roosevelt had this this sometimes strained relationship with the founder of Medora, the, the Marquis de Moray. Um, so, so who was the Marquis? And, and uh, can you tell us about this alleged duel between him and T.R. that, that was supposed to have uh, been narrowly avoided? Sure. Uh, Medora, the town of Medora, was, was founded by the Marquis de Mores, who was, as the title implies, a French nobleman. He and T.R. actually were very similar in a lot of ways. They were within six months of age of each other. They were both 24 years old when they arrived here independently of each other. The Marquis arrived first in April of 1883. And uh, by the time T.R. arrives, about five months later, he had founded the town already, uh, a town did exist called Little Missouri on the west bank of the Little Missouri River, but the Marquis came to the east bank of the Little Missouri and, and founded his own town, which at that point was kind of a company town, and he called it Medora after his wife. And then T.R. arrived that September to hunt, a well-known story. And in all of T.R.'s voluminous writings, he, you know, he talked, about many things and many people, but he rarely mentioned the Marquis de Mores. And uh, after a lot of digging, I found maybe maybe like four references, maybe five, that T.R. had made to the Marquis. And one uh, one author put it well. He said they just seemed to irritate each other, <laughs> the Marquis and T.R. <laughs> uh, they did have those similarities, but they also had some vast differences. Uh for instance, the Marquis believed in the divine right of kings. Uh, mm-hmm. T.R., shall we say, did not believe that. And in, in a lot of ways, they were just too much alike to, to really get along. The Marquis was, was very thin-skinned um, and yeah. quite a fighting man. In June of 1883, just within three months of the Marquis' arrival, uh, before T.R. ever got out here, the Marquis was, and some of his men were involved in a, a gunfight with some hunters, and one of the hunters named Riley Lovesey was killed. And the Marquis faced a couple of preliminary examinations and was discharged with no indictments. But two years later, a grand jury did indict the Marquis for murder, and he did uh, stand trial for it. He was held in jail in Bismarck, 
And the Marquis sent a letter to Theodore Roosevelt, basically uh, accusing him of being in league with the Marquis's enemies and causing him to be indicted for this murder. And uh, he mentioned Joe Ferris um, being instrumental in procuring witnesses against the Marquis. And uh, at any rate, that letter survives, and, and T.R. received the letter and took it as a challenge to a duel. And the Marquis was a duelist. He'd, uh, at, up to that point, he'd fought duels in France. He'd killed a man, uh, or his group at least, had killed a man here at Little Missouri. And uh, Roosevelt took it as a challenge to a duel and wrote a response and, and stood up for himself. I uh, forget his exact language now, but he uh, he said, I am not your enemy. If I were, you would know it. I would be an open enemy. And then he closed by saying, as, as your words seem to imply a threat, uh, you know, I am always on hand to account mm-hmm. for my words and actions, something to that effect. Yeah. It's been debated. Uh, I think most historians doubt that it was an actual challenge to a duel. The Marquis was very direct when he did challenge someone to a duel, and, and his letter was kind of vague. You could read between the lines, as T.R. apparently did, and consider it a challenge. Yeah. But at any rate, T.R. did stand up for himself and, and uh, didn't back down and kind of threw it back at the marquee. And we don't know uh, the marquee's response to that, but he and Roosevelt continued to get along. They were never close friends. And in fact, if, if I could at this point, uh, I always wondered, as, as I mentioned earlier, TR mentioned a lot of people and uh, events, but he had very little to say about the marquee. <laughs> and in going through the old, uh, some old newspapers, I did find a, a specific reference or that Roosevelt made about the marquee mm-hmm. when he was in Cuba uh, during the Spanish-American War. And one of the reporters one of the correspondents who had spent time in the Black Hills and knew uh, the Marquis and Roosevelt um, specifically asked T.R. about the Marquis and Roosevelt. Well, uh, the reporter, Kenneth Harris, in his dispatch says, Colonel Roosevelt is a good storyteller. And whether he is talking of his little Missouri ranch experiences or of the humors of a New York police court, he always has a large and interested audience. One night he was speaking of the Marquis de Mores. It was like living with a cotton-mouthed adder to be with him, Roosevelt said. Exciting and interesting, but not pleasant. Spectacular <laughs> man, dramatic. So, uh, so that finally we have a, qu- a direct quote from T.R. about the Marquis, <laughs> and uh, you know it, he's an interesting fellow, but it, it wasn't pleasant to be around him. <laughs> Exciting and interesting, <laughs> but not pleasant. But, not pleasant, and, <laughs> and that says it all. And uh, unfortunately, we we don't have a record of what the Marquis thought of T.R. We we know that T.R. did dine at the Chateau de Mores, the home of the the Marquis and Medora. Yeah. He did dine there a few times. We know that he borrowed books uh, from the Chateau, Medora's books, apparently. Uh, Medora was a New York socialite. Uh, her father was a, a banker in New York, very wealthy. And the Roosevelt's and the von Hoffmans kind of ran in the same circles. And another mystery that we've tried to solve is is how close were the Roosevelt's and the von Hoffmans back in New York. Hmm. 
and we know that Medora's father and TR's father belonged to the same clubs and attended some of the same events, we can assume that TR and Medora knew at least of each other back in New York and then renewed that acquaintance out here. So, uh, so TR and Medora apparently got on fine, but uh, mm-hmm. she had some issues with her husband. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, uh, we recently had Chris O'Brien from the Theodore Roosevelt Center um, on the podcast. And uh, just a, a tie-in to that, uh, both of these – this exchange of letters between Theodore Roosevelt and the, and the Marquis are available – and the digital library in the Theodore Roosevelt Center. Both, I mean, that's amazing. Both of those letters survived, and you and uh, we're going to put links up on our website, uh, talkaboutteddy.com, to both of those letters, and folks can make up their minds uh, for themselves, I guess, as to uh, to the extent that the marquee actually may have challenged Roosevelt or not. Right, but, right. Yeah, wonderful stuff. And uh, the challenge is kind of in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I like, I think it was Bill Sewell that mentioned TR's response as the challenged party. He would have choice of weapons. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and what was his choice? And, and that's that's another slight contradiction. Uh, one, one of the accounts uh, says TR chose shotguns at 10 paces. Another Sewell account says it was rifles at 12 paces. Yeah. Not not a big difference, but even there you have contradictions. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah. Well, if I could just circle back about the that vigilante group, it was his early uh, biographer Herman Hagedorn that made that claim that both Roosevelt and the Marquis eagerly sought out to join the vigilante group. Right. Right. One thing I discovered is they were rarely here at the same time. They both were on the move constantly. The timeline doesn't allow it. It does not allow the Marquis and TR to have gone into Montana together when Hagenhorn says they did. And in, in preparing the book, I went through the old newspapers. They were both very prominent men, and their, their comings and goings typically made the newspapers. And when I kind of drew a parallel timeline, uh, they were rarely here at the same time, which led me to question the vigilante uh, episode. At that time, Granville Stewart in Montana had formed a vigilante army to fight rustling, and Hagedorn and others had the Marquis and, and TR jointly going into Montana to basically beg Granville Stewart to be allowed to ride with his vigilantes. And that story's been repeated many times, but Again, in constructing this parallel timeline, uh, it, it, just, it's, it couldn't have happened because TR and the Marquis were not here at the same time when they would have had to go into Montana and, and meet with Granville Stewart. So it was a good story. Apparently, it originated with Granville Stewart's second wife, who he married many years after the fact. And, and where she got the story, uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, Hagedorn didn't really seem to know either, but apparently the story started with uh, the second Mrs. Granville Stewart, and uh, but it, it just didn't happen. And, and T.R. Uh, also, as his later record demonstrates, was not a vigilante. No. But, and, and that uh, I guess that kind of leads into uh, T.R.'s claim that he was a deputy sheriff out here. And 
another famous story, of course, is his pursuit of the boat thieves when his boat was stolen and and he and his two men set out in pursuit and uh, caught up with the thieves who were stuck behind an ice jam on the river and and eventually took them into Dickinson. And, and TR did get paid for that. You know, he turned in his expenses and apparently was paid through Morton County. Billings County that, that Medora is in now existed in name only back then. It was unorganized, so the, the county justice system was out of Morton County, Mandan. Unfortunately, Morton County's records uh, are lost. Apparently, they were destroyed in a flood many years ago. When I was researching the book, just to uh, check off all the boxes, I did go through the Billings County Courthouse and the Stark County Courthouse, which is where Dickinson is. And the records do go back that far to the 1880s, but there's no mention of T.R. being uh, a deputy sheriff. So apparently he was paid through Morton County, and those records are lost. So I I don't believe Roosevelt was ever an officially sanctioned deputy sheriff. I think the boat thief arrest was kind of a citizen's arrest, although they did honor his expenses, and he got those reimbursed. But he he often did claim uh, with with a great deal of pride uh, that he was a deputy sheriff in Dakota Territory and the and and the the story is very uh, very honorable. I mean, that was quite a trip. Uh, Tr and his yeah. two men took after the boat thieves. And uh, you know, another thing I, I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but it occurred to me afterward is uh, Tr and his group led the three thieves to the Diamond Sea Ranch near the Kildare Mountains. Tr rented a a wagon and a driver to take the thieves into Dickinson about 45 miles away. And TR walked behind the wagon 45 miles. Now he's at a ranch, he's hired a a team and wagon. Why didn't he rent himself a horse? (laughs) You know, I guess because he's Theodore Roosevelt. He he always looked for the most extreme challenge, right? Strenuous life. (laughs) He'd rather walk 45 miles than ride 45 miles. But the, the boat thieves, you know, TR took great pains to deliver them to jail in Dickinson when when a lot of the uh, area ranchers basically asked him, yeah. you know, why, why didn't you just shoot him or hang him, get it over with? And mm-hmm. he took great pains to uh, bring them to justice. So he was obviously not a vigilante at heart. No. Now, I know in the introduction to your book, you make a reference to that nefarious lawbreaker Lippy Slim whose only known arrest was made by an intrepid young deputy sheriff from Dakota Territory named Theodore Roosevelt. Who was yeah. Lippy Slim? <laughs> yeah, Lippy, uh, I, I tried to keep keep the book kind of lighthearted. Yeah. Uh, you know, I tried to document everything, but I did try to keep it a little lighthearted because uh, I didn't want to, you know, T.R. was a great man. I didn't want to offend, you know, his, his following. Yeah. And I, I admire him greatly. But uh, Lippy Slim, I, I dedicated the book to Lippy Slim, and uh, <laughs> I uh, have, have spent my basically my entire life. You know, I've read a lot about uh, Western lawmen and outlaws, and I'd never come across <laughs> Lippy Slim, and uh, and I dug probably deeper than I've ever dug before, and no reference at all other than Theodore Roosevelt to an outlaw named Lippy Slim. 
and uh, even even in the Hagedorn notes, which which are online now, uh, courtesy of Rolf Sletten. Even in the Hagedorn notes, he asked some of his informants, "What what did they know about Lippy Slim?" Because he's obviously seeing the the reference TR made. None of his informants knew anything about Lippy Slim. They <laughs> they said, "Gosh, we never never heard of him," you know, and uh, so my conclusion and actually uh, I, I made a serious offer $500 reward for Lippy Slim anyone who can <laughs> prove that Lippy Slim existed beyond the word of Theodore Roosevelt and I, I will pay that if anyone can prove yeah. Lippy Slim existed and uh, do you have a wanted poster we can maybe uh, you know, put I, up online I, I'm making one up I really <laughs> did. Uh, but, uh, but no Lippy uh, Lippy, I'm afraid, existed only in TR's imagination. Mm-hmm. And well, I know he, uh, even uh, he, uh, the way he de- describes Lippy, he said uh, it, w- it was his first meeting with um, Seth Bullock between Medora and Deadwood when he first met Seth Bullock. And he said they, they were kind of comparing notes on some of these outlaws that they were familiar with. And Calamity Joe was brought up. He was a real, real area uh, rustler, horse stealer. And TR uh, claimed to have arrested Calamity Joe as well. Well, he did not. Uh, Calamity Joe's pretty well documented, and he was arrested a couple of times, never by Theodore Roosevelt, although Roosevelt claimed he arrested Calamity Joe and also <laughs> Lippy Slim. And he asked, mm-hmm. uh, look, what happened to, to Lippy Slim? And, and well, uh, Granville Stewart hanged him. Well, th- this uh, occurred, you know, after the the Montana Stranglers were oh. were on the loose. So uh, it was just a neat story, but uh, no basis in fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably in line with with uh, my next question here. But I, uh, I know Roosevelt enjoyed telling the the stories of his close encounters with barroom bullies and, and bunking up with wanted criminals during his time in the West. Uh, so what have you discovered about some of these tales told as truth by TR? Yeah, the, another famous story is, in uh, I think TR only ever said in a frontier town, a little frontier town, which has come to be remembered as Weibo, Montana, which was Mingusville at that time, although TR never, he, he was quite vague on when it happened and where it happened, but he uh, talked about knocking out a gunman in a saloon who had who was trying to force TR to buy the drinks, and uh, TR was a boxer at Harvard, apparently a very good boxer, and uh, TR said he, he cold-cocked this guy, and I, I believe he probably did whether it was a dangerous gunman or just a barroom drunk, uh, you know, that that's open to interpretation. But Roosevelt told that story many times, and it, it seemed to grow a little bit every time. The first time he mentioned it, it was just a very short paragraph, and, and uh, almost you almost overlook it. And uh, the story kind of grew with each retelling until it became this uh, famous Western encounter between TR and a two-gun bad man you know but i I think he probably did uh he you know obviously he would have stuck up for himself and and he was good with his fists in fact uh, fred willard our first sheriff who was a gunfighter and and that's another 
another interesting comparison of TR and Fred Willard. But Willard said later that he, he could outride Roosevelt, he could outshoot Roosevelt, but he could not outbox Roosevelt. Wow. So you wonder if Fred Willard and TR didn't mix it up a little bit too with their fists. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that a bit. No. So you've mentioned Herman Hagedorn's notes and others. What sources, as you were writing the book, did you find the most helpful in researching this? Uh, I, I went through a lot of uh, old newspapers and and uh, some court records, prison records, recollections from contemporaries of TR. Yeah. So it was kind of a combination of, of sources, but I, I tried to get as original sources as possible, you know, as contemporary as possible, because I think as people, and I know this from experience too, as we try to recollect events in in our past they become vague even when we're we don't think they are you know but Mm -hmm. we're often corrected and we're all guilty of that i guess and uh but but i tried to get as original records as as possible to compare with tr's uh recollections Mm -hmm. yeah going back to to hagedorn his roosevelt in the badlands that was actually um funded, I believe, in part by the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial Association right after his death. Hagedorn had handwritten letters from Roosevelt before he had died uh, in early 1919, basically um, giving his permission for Hagedorn to come out and talk to Roosevelt's contemporaries from the Badlands in the 1880s. So I know Hagedorn is kind of the basis for a a lot of uh, the biographers that come after him. Uh, I found Hagedorn does have a freely available online open source book uh, that folks can go. And again, we'll, we'll post a link to that so people can read it. But it was interesting. I found Hagedorn said that he couldn't find copies. And this is back 1920 time frame. He couldn't find copies of the Badlands Cowboy, for example, pr- um, printed in Medora during TR's time. It was, I found that interesting that we – yeah, we have those available now through Library of Congress, uh, I think most of those copies, but right. Hagdorn claims to have not been able to get his hands on them. Yeah, I, I guess I, I didn't realize how scarce they were at that time. But yeah, you're, you're right, uh, Kurt, they are available now on Library of Congress website. Uh, the, the paper was published three years, 1884, five and 1886. Uh, well, the newspaper office burned in January of 87. I think one issue came out in 87. And that's one of the lost issues. Uh, they're all available except for maybe a dozen issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the editor and founder was uh, A.T. Packard, who I mentioned at the beginning how young T.R. and the Marquis were. They were 24 when they arrived here. Packard was even younger. He was fresh out of college. He was like 22 years old when he founded the Badlands Cowboy. Huh. So one one thing that surprised me when when I realized that is just how young a, a lot of these people were out here. They were just kids in their twenties, you know, making a name for themselves. But the Badlands Cowboy is very very interesting to browse. Mm-hmm. Speaking of trying to use those sources that are closest to the events, Hagedorn's biography is based very much on the oral histories of Roosevelt's contemporaries who are recalling events from 35 years in the past. Yeah. Um, 
So, you know, based on your research then, um, you know, do we trust TR's writings of his time in the West um, on his own recollections of decades later? Or is it better to look at those letters written closest to when the events occurred? Can can we trust TR's later recollections? Yeah, I I think it's true with anyone uh, that the the earliest recollection is probably the most accurate. Uh, and it's it's kind of ironic. There is a letter, uh, I came across this after the book was was printed, or I, I would have included it, but in, uh, I believe in 1908, um, TR wrote a letter to Edward Curtis, who was uh, touring Indian reservations across the West and uh, did a study of the Custer battle. Mm-hmm and was interviewing some of the Indian scouts and had some what would have been kind of revolutionary new information based uh, upon his talks with these Indian scouts, basically saying uh, kind of critical of Custer. And uh, Roosevelt, you know, uh, wrote, wrote this response to Curtis, basically saying don't, don't pursue that. You know, Custer was a hero, and he said, something to the effect, you know, uh, anyone's recollections 35 years on cannot be trusted. <laughs> and I, I thought, wow, okay, TR. Yeah. <laughs> Indictment against yourself there. That's true of anyone, of course. But, uh, but yeah, I think the earlier to the event, uh, the more accurate. Yeah. Now, I know you've tried to separate the documentable truth from what Edmund Morris described as TR's tendency for, was it humorous exaggeration and poetic license in storytelling. So what kind of feedback have you had from Roosevelt admirers regarding the TR myth-busting? Yeah, it's actually been quite positive. Um, A great-grandson of TR had, had read the book and had known him for years, and I had sent something to the effect, you may not like everything I, I say, but I, I said I did document everything. I was careful to document everything. Yeah. And he had said, uh, I don't mind criticism of TR if it's fair. Yeah. And he gave me some feedback. He he was complimentary of the book, and he said, he said you were very fair to TR. You documented everything. And he said, I, I learned a lot about my great-grandfather. By reading your book, so that that was high praise to me. Yeah, I'll say. And I, I felt very good, but I, I, I did try, uh, as I said earlier, you know, I, I tried not to be too hard on TR. Uh, yeah. You know, it, uh, I think it's human nature to want to tell a good story, but I did want to point out the differences. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier. To me, the danger was that so many people just uh, accept his writings uncritically, and uh, I, I think the line should be made clear uh, on what, what is documented fact and what is not. Mm-hmm. I like on every page you have the citations and footnotes. And when you put a quote, you give a citation for it. I think as good historians, we have to do that. We need to give citations. So it's not just in a quote and you're like, where did this come from? Someone can go to that original source and look it up. Yeah. Well, thank you, Larry. And I was a little frustrated with Herman Hagedorn. Uh, you know, he listed his <laughs> sources at the end of, of the narrative, but oh. he didn't uh, 
footnote no. uh, his statements. You know, he listed his informants, but he didn't uh, differentiate. And now, now that his notes are online, uh, gosh, he uh, he had voluminous notes, yeah. and uh, I, I gained a, more of an admiration for him when I realized all the information he had to sift through and and try to decide what was worthy of being included and what was not. Yeah. So, Doug, you um, you published this collection of stories back in 2017, and I know that you're always actively researching TR in his time in the Badlands. Uh, were there, you had made reference to this uh, um, Curtis response regarding Custer. Are there any additional stories that, that didn't get into your tales told as truth? <clears throat> I did find a couple uh, short references that had, had I – seen them I would have included and if the books ever republished I, I will include them but if I could read those uh, one is from a, a newspaper in 1893 and that's when TR was he wasn't really nationally known yet except through his writings but 1893 he was a on the Civil Service Commission mm-hmm. and uh, th- this is from Jamestown North Dakota and the reporter was was interviewing Howard Eaton, who was coming through on the train. And Howard Eaton was a little Missouri pioneer uh, who arrived here in 1880. You'll see his name a lot in the uh, Badlands Cowboy newspaper and, and other sources. But this reporter was interviewing Howard Eaton in 1893. And he says, The haze that surrounds Western adventures as depicted in the Eastern press and magazines is generally sufficient to conceal about all the truth there is in the stories. (laughs) Readers will remember that civil service reformer Roosevelt of New York a few years ago wrote a series of articles for Century Magazine in which his explorations and life as a Western cowboy were graphically portrayed. Any old-time stockman, says Mr. Eaton, who reads the Roosevelt articles will smile to himself at the power of imagination they display and the wide divergence of many of the escapades and adventures from the facts. <laughs> so, so even Howard Eaton was chuckling at, at TR's stories. And uh, there's one more I, I came across, if I could read that. This is actually a, a correspondent from Minneapolis, Minnesota, 1899, who um, came through the Badlands. So at that time... Uh, TR, I guess, would have been governor of New York. He was becoming more more nationally known. But uh, this Minneapolis reporter, as he came through here, he said, it is also related of Teddy that he possessed all the cleverness of Anthony Hope in making a strong calcium light follow himself through most of his own narratives. Thus, in one of his books of life in the Badlands, he tells of a desperate shooting affray at Medora, which he did not witness as he was at the time en route to the scene of action and was swimming his horse across the river, quote, holding his rifle high above his head, unquote. One old fellow whom I ran across at Medora recalled this story and stamped it as a most wonderful feat. The simple act of braving the raging little Missouri on horseback was not what provoked astonishment. It was not the narrator's forethought in keeping his powder dry, the real cause of admiration vouchsafed after various questionings was the fact that on the same day the shooting occurred, quote, Mickelson had crossed the river on the ice with 4,400 pounds on his wagon. 
unquote. <laughs> for all that, the correspondent said, but for all that, Betty has a niche of honor in every household in the Badlands. <laughs> and his perilous passage of the river is told as a good joke that grows better as its subject mounts higher on the ladder of fame. <laughs> and that shooting uh, actually occurred. It occurred in November of 1884. TR was still out here uh, late that year. So the shooting was in November. And uh, again, TR in um, one of his articles, I forget which uh, article or chapter that of his book that's in, but yeah, he did describe, you know, swimming the raging little Missouri, hearing the gunshots. And well, as the guy pointed out, that was in November and they were freighting up and down the ice. (laughs) (laughs) Details. Oh, that is. Details, details, right? Yeah. (laughs) So of all the, Theodore Roosevelt stories from his time in the Badlands. What one's your favorite? Um, I, I thought you might ask that. So it's actually, uh, it's not so much a specific uh, incident, but in, in his autobiography, Roosevelt talks about a time when he and uh, his hired man Merrifield were coming back from the Bighorn Mountains on a hunting trip. And uh, T.R. wrote... Uh, several times about his solitary trips through the Badlands, but this one struck me especially, and uh, they they get close to home, and T.R. and Merrifield decide to strike out, leave the wagon behind, and strike out on their own. It's just a a great descriptive passage. Uh, T.R. says, It was a beautiful moonlight night, and the ride was delightful. All day long we had plodded along at a walk, weary and hot, at supper time, we rested two or three hours, and the tough little horses seemed as fresh as ever. It was in September. As we rode out of the circle of firelight, the air was cool in our faces. Under the bright moonlight, and then under the starlight, we loped and cantered mile after mile over the high prairie. We passed bands of antelope and herds of longhorn Texas cattle. And at last, just as the first red beams of the sun flamed over the bluffs in front of us, we rode down into the valley of the Little Missouri where our ranch house stood. And I, I just think that's a beautiful passage. And, and to me, yeah. uh, when I think of TR in the Badlands, I, I just think of his descriptions of, of uh, riding, riding through the Badlands and enjoying the, the scenery and the solitude. So to, to me, that's TR in the Badlands. That is. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. He, he really was a, a tremendous landscape artist with with words yes very Um, much very much so yeah but obviously it's well known you you guys promote that more than anyone on how the badlands changed his life and uh Mm -hmm. and it's just easy to imagine him uh you know writing he he was with merrifield there but often he was alone you know just with his own thoughts kind of finding his center so to speak yeah Mm -hmm. Well, we'll follow that beautiful passage with one more. Uh, could we ask you to read? <laughs> could we ask you to read from your your epilogue? We, uh, Larry oh, and I, sure. both very much enjoy the epilogue to your book. Okay, I will do that. Um, yeah, I say Theodore Roosevelt was possessed by an energetic and enthusiastic personality. It governed his thoughts and influenced his actions. It allowed him to form his ideal vision of the future, such as minutely describing a cabin home that did not yet exist. 
and to reshape the events of his past into what he felt they should have been. He did not apparently denigrate others by doing so, and thus only literal history was cheated. Lippy Slim remains the most wanted outlaw in the land. We know Theodore Roosevelt arrested him because Roosevelt said he did, but Lippy was not hanged by Stuart Stranglers. In fact, he never died. He escaped to the shadows, and he still lives in the mythology of the American West. He taunts us from the next hilltop, and then the next, and so the pursuit continues. Lippy would swear to the truth of every tale told here if only we, like Roosevelt, could catch and question him. <laughs> That's great. So uh, That's Lippy so great. is still out there somewhere. Yep. <laughs> oh, Doug, this has been a terrific conversation. No, <laughs> thanks, wonderful. Larry. How can folks find your book, Theodore Roosevelt and Tales Told as Truth of His Time in the West? Well, I'm, I'm not much of a marketer, so uh, I... I have it in my bookstore in Medora, Western Edge Books. Um, I guess uh, maybe the easiest way is uh, my wife Mary and I uh, have an inn called Amble Inn Lodging and Western Edge Books. And we have a a Facebook page, Amble Inn and Western Edge Books. And uh, if you just want to direct message us on on the Facebook page, uh, we'll get the message and uh, give you the details uh, that way. That might be the easiest. Great. Yeah, we can put the link for that on our website. Definitely. You bet. Wow, Doug. Thanks. That's what a great conversation. We uh, oh, we so appreciate wonderful. you joining us on the Talk well, About Teddy podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you for the invitation. I I've enjoyed it. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. You can find this podcast on our website, talkaboutteddy.com, where you can see show notes and transcripts links to resources, and additional TR content. And do please tell us what you think. And if you've enjoyed our content, please consider subscribing and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. And tell your friends and family about us, because it really does make a tremendous difference, and it helps others find this show. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Talk About Teddy. And until then, as our friend TR would say, do what you can with what you have where you are.